My name is Kent, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles to our scripture reading for today. It's found in Luke chapter 15. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can open it or open your phone or you can grab a Bible out of a chair that's uh, within reach there. Luke is in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, 15th chapter. Luke 15. And this happens to be my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. I think it's one of the great chapters of the Bible. So we're going to read the whole chapter. So we're going to start with Luke 15, starting with verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents, more than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or, suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp? sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will go back and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine who was dead is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. 
But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. I didn't know that we were going to sing, or that the worship team was going to sing this little opening song, I've Got a River of Life, but we used to sing that in youth group. But we sang it only in the fast mode. I think we sang it in the fast and super fast. So it went something like this. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. Opens prison doors, sets the captives free. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. And then we did this. Spring up, oh well, within my soul. Spring up, oh well, and make me whole. Spring up, oh well, and give to me that life abundantly. Anybody else do it that way? Yeah, some of you remember that version. I was going to ask you all to do it, but I don't want anybody to throw out a hip today, so I think we're going to hold off on that. But I got another song. This is the song I was actually hoping to start with. So if you know this song, sing along with me. It goes like this. Let me see. Where, where, I got to get on my right page of my notes here. What song do I want to sing next? Oh, here's the song. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, then your face will surely show it. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. And then we had a bunch of other verses that went along with that. Stomp your feet and shout amen and whatever like that. And I remember singing these songs as a kid in Sunday school. And it was, uh, it's kind of like, I don't know if you guys have looked in at our Sunday school opening this year. It's really been a lot like that. There's just lots of energy and lots of joy and lots of delight. It was kind of fun. And then we would go into the worship, the big people's worship, after Sunday school, and I would have this idea in my mind that if you're happy and you know it, your face would surely show it. And I'd look around the room, and what did I see? <laughs> and if you can kind of imagine, can't you? And this really became a dilemma. One Sunday, the pastor was preaching on Psalm 122, which starts out with a verse that says, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. And he's preaching about the gladness that comes from going to the house of the Lord. And I'm looking around and I'm like, I am not seeing much gladness. I am seeing some sadness, I think, a fair amount of crabbiness. And you know what that looks like. And some of it even looks like madness, like mad, like these people don't look like they're glad to be here. They look like they're mad to be here. And so that created a little bit of a disconnect for me. And I was trying to think about why is it that we have this kind of posture when we come to the Lord's house on the Lord's day? It's kind of like we just slip into this mode where we, you know, put on our old people crabby face. <laughs> just, I'll just say it, okay? I'm, I'm talking about other places, not here. You know that, right? <laughs> And that got me thinking a little bit about how we tend to approach the Sabbath generally. And I don't know about you, but I grew up with a kind of a sense of Sabbath and Sabbath keeping that was largely about keeping rules. And the Sabbath for us in our household was a lot more about the things you don't do on the Sabbath than the things you do do on the Sabbath. Now, some of you are smiling big right now. Did you grow up in homes like that too? 
And this, this um, kind of perception of the Sabbath and how we keep the Sabbath was so widespread that it actually impacted our culture. And so there was, for quite some time in our, in our culture, blue laws. You remember those? And the blue laws were there to legislate the things you could not do on Sunday. And a lot of it had to do with commerce and trade, what you could do. You, you know, you couldn't buy a drink, you couldn't go shopping, you couldn't buy a car, you couldn't do real estate transactions. There was a bunch of laws about the things you could not do on Sabbath, which exactly mirrored my, the Sabbath rule, the blue laws in my home growing up. You know, we could not go out to eat on Sunday, could not go shopping on Sunday, could not wash the car on Sunday, we could not go to the swimming pool on Sunday, we could not work or do anything that would make another person work. And I understand where this came from. It's a clearly trying to interpret Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments where it says, You shall not work, neither you, nor your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor the stranger that is within your gates. Nobody's supposed to work on the Sabbath. But it tended to make the Sabbath kind of a bummer. Did anybody else grow up with that? I'm not sure we exactly looked forward to the Sabbath because the highlight was nap time. That was the highlight of the Sabbath. So... I'm not sure if that's still the case, but it's, it feels to me like we often still look at the Sabbath as being that way. Now, I've mentioned this is my favorite chapter in the Bible, Luke chapter 15. It's really um, a story, I think, that gives us a picture of the kingdom of God, and we've been looking at that in our Slow Church series. If we were going to try to reflect what the kingdom of God is like, then we would slow down quite a bit and we would behave a little bit differently. Now, I don't know that I've ever heard this particular passage used for the Sabbath or teaching about the Sabbath, but I think it's a pretty small step to get there because in this passage, it starts, look at how it's set up. We don't often start with the setup. Look at verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners gathered around Jesus. Sometimes we skip over these little introductory verses, but this is really an important verse. You get what's happening here? The, the, the sinners, the tax collectors, the outcasts, those who were not welcomed in this community wanted to gather around Jesus. They were looking forward to coming and spending time in his presence. If I could make a definition for the Sabbath, that, you, couldn't, you could do worse than that. The Sabbath is a desire to gather with Jesus, a desire to draw near to Jesus. This is my picture of what the Sabbath is supposed to be. The Sabbath is supposed to be this like great opportunity for us to get together. So if we start with that premise in mind and read this whole chapter again, looking for one idea, the idea of joy and rejoicing, how many times does it show up in this chapter? Nine times. Nine times these people who gather together with the, at the feet of Jesus end up celebrating something. They're rejoicing. They're glad. I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. These people are rejoicing. And so I thought it might help us slow down a little bit and celebrate this Sabbath day if we could just look at what happens in this particular passage and experience the joy for ourselves. And I think it all comes down to our focus verse there, which is verse 10. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels in heaven over one sinner who repents. So this kind of joy that we're talking about, that's not just like a little smirk on your face or a little smile or a giggle. This is joy on earth, and it's a joy that reaches all the way up to heaven so that the angels themselves are rejoicing. That's the kind of joy that comes from this passage. Now, Jesus often, when he was gathering together with these sinners and tax collectors, with the outsiders, he often told them a story. 
And the stories that he told were stories about familiar things, everyday kind of experiences that they would experience. And he told them um, in memorable ways, and he often repeated them. And we actually, one of our principles for studying Scripture is that if some story is repeated more than once, we really pay attention to it. The same basic story is repeated in this chapter three times. Three memorable stories about the same particular point. Which of you, if you had a hundred sheep and lost one of them, wouldn't leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Which of you, if you had 10 coins and lost one of them, wouldn't sweep the whole house and keep looking for the lost coin until she finds it? These parables are about the kingdom of God, and at the center of the kingdom is God seeking. And God seeks until he finds. He does not stop looking until he finds. In the final parable, this is even more clear because the son, in this case, willfully leaves. You know, you can think, is it the coin's fault for getting lost? Is it the sheep's fault for wandering off? It's just being a sheep. And the third story, the son willfully, actually in a kind of an insulting way, he goes to his father and says, hey, I know you're not dead yet, but can I have my inheritance? And the father gives it to him. And so not long after that, he leaves and he goes off to a far country and there he squanders his wealth on I like the old King James Version still, riotous living. He goes off and lives this life, and then after all of his money is gone, a famine comes, and so he ends up taking the only job he can get, which is feeding pigs, a Jewish boy feeding pigs, and he's so hungry, the pig slop looks good to him. He's tempted to eat what the pigs are eating. And I imagine that his father goes out on the porch every day and looks for a son. I think the best verse of the best chapter in the whole Bible is verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Why did his father see him? Because I imagine every day the father went out to the porch and he started to scan the horizon and he wonders, is today the day? Is the day the day the son's going to come back? And he looks and then one day there's a somebody on the horizon. He can't quite make him out, but it's way off in the distance. And pretty soon he notices that guy walks just like my son. And I can imagine his blood pressure spikes and he gets all excited and the, the, the joy in his heart just begins to bubble up as he gets a little bit closer and he goes, that's my son. And he does this very undignified thing for a father and an estate manager. He hikes up his skirts, which no one would ever do in public. This guy humiliates himself to run to the end of the lane and he doesn't even hear the son's speech. He wraps his arms around him. He kisses him and he starts calling. He makes plans. Kill the fatted calf. Get the robe. Get the ring. These are all symbols that, by the way, he's still my son. Can you imagine the anxiety over that son as he's making that long journey from the far country back? What's my dad going to do with me? I wonder what my dad's going to do with me. Is he going to welcome me back? I'm hoping he'll make me a slave or a servant. I'm hoping because that way, he's a good man. He'll take care of me. He'll feed me. I'll get my food. I'll get something to do. I'll be back in my father's presence. He has no expectation that the father's going to welcome him back and reinstate him as one of his own sons. He has no idea. 
But the Father does that. And then there is rejoicing because the Son is welcome. Now, this story is often called the story of the prodigal son. How many of you have heard that? Prodigal, you know what that means? Prodigal means like an extravagant wastefulness, like this lavish, kind of reckless lavish. So we're thinking of him as the prodigal son because he goes out and he's extravagant and reckless with his inheritance. He, he blows the whole wad on wild living. It's, that's, that's prodigal. Um, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, wrote a really great book on this, and the title of the book is called Prodigal God because he thinks that the prodigal tag fits even better with God because this God who welcomes back, this father who welcomes back his son, it's reckless what he does. This son has already blown half, his, half the guy's estate. Now he's going to give him back some more. He's got this reckless love, and it's a picture of God's love for us that this God has this reckless, extravagant love that he's just waiting to lavish on us. Why? Because the kingdom is about God seeking and God doesn't stop seeking until he finds. That's how God operates. That's the way the kingdom works. God's most important work of all, of all the things God does and of all the creative work that God does, of all the sustaining work in all of the universe, the most important work that God does is seeking us. And when God finds us, that's when the celebrating starts. Now, I used to think that this celebration was mostly about the relief of the sinner, the relief of the son as he's come home. He's like, oh, I'm so relieved. My dad welcomed me back. So certainly there's joy in his heart. I think that fits with the sheep. Can you imagine for a minute if you're a sheep, you're separated from the flock, wandering around. Maybe you're not aware of how much danger you are in, but certainly you're aware that there's no other sheep around here. All of a sudden, you're all alone. And can you imagine when the sheep hears this familiar voice calling out? The sheep recognizes that's the voice of the shepherd. And can you imagine the deep relief that would come as the sheep is hoisted up on his shoulders and carried back to the flock? Can you imagine if, if sheep could be happy? That's a happy sheep who's getting carried back to his flock by his master, right? Now, it's a little tougher with coins. I don't know about coins having f- feelings or not, but uh, does the coin know if it's confined in my pocket or if it's stuck underneath the sofa cushion? I don't know. But let's just go with me for a minute. A coin stuck in a sofa cushion is not a happy coin. Let's just stipulate that, okay? And then when the coin is found and the coin becomes the source of the great celebration, look, look, I found it. Call my neighbors in. A lost son who's stuck in a, who was stuck in a pig pen recently thinking about eating pig pods for dinner, he would be happy when he got home, wouldn't he? Well, don't take my word for it. Listen to that. I think the text actually does a really good job of helping us feel what this, the, the joy that the son must have felt. Listen again. I'm going to go back to verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set out for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. This, the beauty of the story is some, some of its understatement. Can you imagine if you were living in a foreign country as an outsider and you had no resources whatsoever and there's a famine in that country? 
to be in need would be an understatement. This kid is desperate. And so he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed pigs, which would be the ultimate insult for a kid of Jewish persuasion, not even supposed to eat pork. Now he's feeding the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods and the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He's all alone. He is all alone. There's no family. There's no friends. There's no... He grew up with servants, remember? He grew up in a wealthy household. Now there is nobody who will take care of him. Beautiful, verse 17. So he came to his senses, it says. You wonder how many days he had to sit there, don't you? How many days would you have to sit in a pig pen before you came to your senses? I would think it wouldn't have to take very long. I don't know. He came to his senses and he's calculating now. How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Oh, they all do. And here I am starving to death. So I'll go back to my father and I'll face the reality. He's going to face the music. I think that's a beautiful part of this story too. I'll just admit it. I sinned against my father and I sinned against God. He's coming clean. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. So he got up and he went back to his father. That is an important verse right there too. He got up and went back to his father. He says, I'm not going to keep myself out here estranged and alienated and separated from God any longer. I'm going to go back. But this is a moment of high anxiety, not knowing what he's going to find when he gets there. And when he does, beyond his wildest dreams, the first thing his father does is he gives him a big hug. Can you imagine the anxiety that would melt away in that hug? And the joy that would come? This kid is happy. I've made some big mistakes in my life, but I made the right call today. I came back to my father. And there's rejoicing, and they throw a party. And I can, I can imagine the joy as this kid is sitting there watching his family and friends and all those people that were invited. They're coming to celebrate him. They're celebrating me. What a great thing. The joy of the finder is a ridiculous kind of joy. But it seems to me that the joy that we have when we're found is not the most profound joy in this passage. That there's even a greater joy, there's even greater rejoicing, and that comes from the one who's seeking. Who throws a party for a lost sheep? No, seriously. We're used to this story. We've heard it many times, but really, sheep wander off all the time, they do. You throw a party every time a sheep comes back? Even more ridiculous, who throws a party for a lost coin? It says she only has ten. She finds the one, so she gets that back. And then what does she spend on this party? Who throws a party for finding a lost? I mean, okay, Bruce asked us earlier if we, if we lose things. Last time you threw a party for finding your car keys? <laughs> we don't throw parties for stuff like that, right? Who throws a party for a lost son? When our kids come back, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Let's throw a party. This, I think, shows us the true nature of the kingdom of God. God never stops seeking us. And when he finds us, there's a party. There's rejoicing on earth and in heaven. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
Sabbath keeping is about entering into the Father's joy. It's about recognizing that God celebrates us every time we come near to Him. He's seeking, 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 seeking. When He finds, He celebrates. Every time we come to Him, He celebrates. Interesting in this story, the older son never enters his father's joy. This is quite a picture at the conclusion of the parable with the son who was prodigal and ran away. Where is he? He's inside with the father. The older son who stayed, where is he? He's outside without the father. He did not enter into the father's joy. In fact, Luke points it out very specifically. He says he calls the father out to him which would have been another insulting thing. And he says, look, I've been a good kid. I obeyed you. I always followed your rules. I did everything you asked me to do. I was the model son, and you never gave me anything. See, this older son is trying to relate to God through his good deeds. He's trying to earn his father. He's trying to deserve his father's love. And you know what the father says? He says, you know what? I always loved you. I never stopped loving you. This is what Sabbath invites us to. It invites all of us, prodigals and older sons and everyone to say, come draw near to me. I love you. I want to be with you. This brings me joy. Our coming to God brings God's joy, and that's why we gather here this morning. This is why we have Sabbath. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him, But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, his father says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he is found. The essence of Sabbath-keeping, God takes delight in us. God loves it when we draw near to Him. This causes rejoicing and gladness. Everyone who comes to faith in Jesus has a party in heaven and rejoicing on earth because we who were lost were found, because God never stops seeking us. And when God finds us, God rejoices. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, then your face will surely show it. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. God, we come before you today and we give you praise and thanks for your truth, for your word. We ask that you'll continue to help us as we come near to you to celebrate and rejoice in your grace. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.